You're listening to an ACA podcast. Welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. It's a pleasure to welcome you to our lecture series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968 to 1999. To begin with, we would like to sincerely acknowledge the Kulin Nations as sovereign custodians of the land upon which we work and welcome visitors at ACA and we extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people. Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, explores critical exhibitions and projects that have shaped Australian art since 1968. The series traces the legacies of artists and curators, addresses the critical reception of significant selected projects, and reflects on a wide range of exhibitions and formats, from artist-run initiatives to new institutional models, as well as interventions in public space and remote communities. This year, in response to COVID-19, we are pleased to present the series as filmed illustrated lectures online and as audio podcasts, with a second season continuing to explore new models and modes of exhibition making that emerged in the 1980s and 1990s. We are delighted to welcome Dr. Michaela Tai, Director of 4A Centre for Contemporary Asian Art and recently appointed Head of Visual Arts at the Australia Council for the Arts. Michaela has collaborated with artists and organisations locally, nationally and internationally to strengthen ties between Australia and Asia. Her lecture reflects on the beginnings of 4A Centre for Contemporary Art, the inaugural exhibition in 1997, the context in which 4A was launched and the impact it has had on Australia's visual arts ecology and contemporary art discourse. We are pleased to welcome Michaela Tai. Hello. I'm Michaela Tai and I'm the director of 4A Centre for Contemporary Asian Art here in Sydney, Australia. Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is on their land that I live and work, and it is also the land on which 4A Galleries, which is where we are today, resides. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and I'd also like to acknowledge that it is on and it is the continuing and dynamic culture of the First Nations, which is the foundation of our shared culture today. This talk today traces the history of the Asian Australian Artists Association, or as it is more affectionately known, 4A. 4A began in 1995, and it was formed by a group of young curators, artists, and theatre makers who were looking to create a place and a platform to really expand ideas of what Australian contemporary culture is. Initially, the organisation was multi-art form. It was theatre and it was visual art. The two organisations that formed this early organisation still exist today. So first we split to become Performance 4A and Gallery 4A. And Performance 4A has now turned into Contemporary Asian Australian Performance and is a resident company in Carriage Works. And Gallery 4A is now where we are today, 4A Centre for Contemporary Asian Art. So we're in Haymarket, which is in the south of Sydney CBD, in Chinatown, corner of Thai Town, and just a stone's throw from Koreatown. So this lecture today looks at the beginning of 4A Centre for Contemporary Asian Art and the contribution it has made to Australia's visual landscape. Since its inception, 4A has played a really critical role in the national discussions about what Australian culture is. As an extension of the Asian Australian Artists Association, the organisation had clear aims to not just be a space for Asian Australian or Asian art, but a place that could really explore Australia's engagement with Asia. The first meetings to establish the organisation, held in 1995, really outlined what they wanted the space to be. It was clear from the beginning that 4A was built by passion, 
by the need to expand this concept of Australian art and an incredible commitment to ensure the ongoing success of the organisation. This passion, need and commitment was underpinned by the growing frustrations of, as a result of racial tensions and discrimination against Asian Australians that was felt all the more acute in the mid-1990s. A quick note on the term Asian Australian. It was then, and it remains today, a really clunky way to categorise Australians who have connections to a vast landscape and territory with many cultures, traditions, languages, ideas and religions. Australia's connection with Asia dates back to when the First Nations first traded with the Macassan seafarers on our northern shores, and it continues today and it will continue tomorrow. And just as the term European Australian lacks any nuance, so does the term Asian Australian. So while I regrettably use this term today, um, I do acknowledge that it's far from perfect. Let's start with a little bit of history. 1996 saw the end of Paul Keating's five-year term as Australia's Prime Minister. The Keating era was defined by his big picture that encompassed Indigenous rights, the proposal of an Australian Republic, and the economic and cultural engagement with Asia. The period between 1991 and 1996 saw Australia firmly identify with its geographic locale and for the first time really shift priorities from Europe and America towards a more regional conversation. An Australian culture that celebrated diversity, embraced multiculturalism was proclaimed and as many reflect now, it was a period of great optimism. However, this all changed in 1996 on March 2nd with the federal election. The first year of John Howard's 11-year leadership was marred by diplomatic disputes that saw Australia's relationship with China sour to its worst level in 24 years. It seemed that Keating's election campaign warning that John Howard would abandon Asia and, I quote Keating here, the leadership of Southeast Asia does not believe that the coalition is serious about the relationship was coming true. 1996 was a year, as historian Roy McDowell notes, and I quote again, was characterised by positive policy depictions and negative crisis depictions. And while trade continued largely unaffected, the public perception of Australia's engagement with Asia was one of discord. This was further exacerbated with the now infamous speech of Pauline Hanson. On September 10, 1996, Pauline Hanson, independent MP from Queensland, delivered a divisive and destructive speech. The speech was littered with dismissals of First Nations, and it also claimed that Australia was, and I quote here, in danger of being swamped by Asians who have their own culture and religion, form ghettos, and do not assimilate. The effects of this speech reverberated around the country in anti-Asian sentiment, once again returned to the mainstream of Australian culture. For many, it was as if the abolishment of the white Australia policy never happened. The hot sting of racism was once again inhabiting the highest political circles and repercussions for First Nations and Asian Australians was keenly felt across the nation. So this was a sort of brief history of the socio-political backdrop for the formation of the Asian Australian Artists Association. For this group of artists, the re-emergence of anti-Asian sentiment was a final galvanising force in their need to establish an organisation that addressed Asia and Asians' contribution to contemporary Australian culture. However, culturally, the scenes had been sown much earlier. Parallel to the socio-political landscape was a growing debate about Australian culture. 
recognition of First Nations art and culture was tardily becoming central to Australia's perception of itself. And the contributions of migrant settlers, particularly those of non-Euro-American heritage, were slowly influencing understandings of Australianness. The Asian Australian cultural discourse really kicked off in 1990s, and particularly in 1991, with John Clarke's ANU conference titled Modernism and Postmodernism in Asian Art. The impact of this conference can still be felt. It was at this conference that Clarke really expanded the term modernity beyond simply Euro-America and proposed a multiplicity of concurrent modernities, including Asian modernities. By proposing and arguing for a fracturing of singular art historical narratives, Clarke embraced pluralism as an approach to understanding culture. It is a concept in 2020 that we are still sadly grappling with. Two years later, in 1993, the book Modernities in Asia was published, which featured expanded conference papers from the symposium and remains a really important resource for any Asian art historian and especially any Asian Australian art historian. A year later, in 1993, the Australian Visual Arts in an Asian Context Symposium was held at the Sydney College of Arts and addressed the profound cultural contribution of Asian migration to Australia and the need to support Australia's cultural relationships within the region. This conference was organised by Christina Davidson, Donald Fitzpatrick and John Young with the assistance of many more. And at this point, there was a growing momentum in discussions and out of this conference, the organisers, along with a few others, began meeting regularly and identified a need to begin an organisation that encouraged, document and fostered Asian Australian activities at a national level. The group began meeting more formally in 1995 and were collaborating at a great pace. Meeting notes from this time are scrawled with handwritten annotations over dense agendas that debated not only the logistics of setting up an organisation, but outlined the development of a comprehensive, clear and compelling strategy to challenge the status quo of Australian culture. By 1996, the group had learnt that there were some theatre-making peers led by Chris Pang and Tech Tan, and they were organising themselves in a similar fashion and after a few meetings, the two groups joined together to become the Asian Australian Artists Association. It was felt that this joint push would enable more impact and support more Asian Australian creatives. From early meeting minutes, it is clear that the aim of 4A was to foster and support the development of Asian Australian creative talent, to open public gathering spaces for the production and appreciation of Asian Australian artistic work and to advocate and celebrate the critical contribution of Asian Australians to Australia's creative economy. However, the organisation had a much more ambitious aim from the outset, to challenge the structure of Australian contemporary art community and through strategic programming and professional development, slowly expand the parameters and expectations of what Australian art is and could be. It was not a small challenge. I spoke to John Young, who was 4A's first president, and who was then establishing himself as a leading Australian postmodernist while teaching at Sydney College of the Arts, who remembers this early drive to change Australia's cultural landscape. It was really creating a space for Asian Australian artists and Australian artists interested in Asian modernity and postmodernity to exist. We knew to change the landscape, it was not just a growth with artists' opportunities, but the entire apparatus, cultural apparatus, had to change. Um, you had to have curators, managers, artists, academics, and critics 
engaged with Asian contemporary culture had to be nurtured and allowed to have a cultural position in Australia. Uh, we need to have, in the end of the day, a chapter within Australian contemporary art um, which is related to this facet of Asian culture. This sentiment remains a critical aspect of the work of both contemporary Asian Australian performance and 4A Centre for Contemporary Asian Art 25 years later. By the close of 1996, the organisation had secured a premises and was preparing to open Gallery 4A early in the new year. The opening of the gallery and the need to represent Asian Australian visual artists was further propelled at the end of 1996 with a second edition of the Asia Pacific Triennale in Brisbane. The APT was a product of the Keating era and an exciting engagement with the contemporary visual arts of Asia curated for an Australian audience. Its legacy is immense. The ongoing project has enabled important works for the region to enter an Australian State Gallery collection and every three years brings contemporary Asian art to the forefront of the Australian visual arts landscape. However, the first two editions were solely focused on Asia and artists residing in Asia. In both 1993 and 1996, there was only one Asian Australian included, Irene Cho and then Suzanne Victor. Both of these were recent migrants and were curated into the program largely based on the work they had been doing in Hong Kong and Singapore before they migrated to Australia. For, Asians, for Asian Australians practicing across the country, this exclusion was particularly painful. Not only were they not included in exhibitions of so-called Australian art, they were also not Asian enough to be included in exhibitions and initiatives such as the APT. This made the opening of Gallery 4A feel even more important and the conversation that the organisation sought to lead even more critical. The opening of 4A was largely imperceptible by the mainstream art community. On the third floor of a building in Sydney's Chinatown, the first exhibition was modest. In the weeks before the opening, the 4A team had converted a small skinny office into a little gallery space. And as is typical of an artist-run initiatives, everyone did everything, from the marketing, to the curating, to the hands-on aspect of small organisations depicted here in the painting. Preparing this lecture, I got the chance to revisit Foray's photographic archives, and the preparation for the opening of the gallery is well documented, as was the opening parties that accompanied it. I asked John Young if there was a buzz when they were preparing to open the space to the public. A buzz in those early years? Yes, uh, perhaps a sense of hope, but it was a very long game. It was definitely a long game that we saw over 10 or 20 years. It was not um, something about participation over two or five years that, that things would change, and certainly not within the Australian landscape. And I would argue that it is still uh, in its infancy. It is unusual for an Ari to think so far into the future when they were just on the cusp of opening their first space. To have such a strong grasp of not only the current artistic landscape, but also that in the future is quite impressive. And this long game focus remains critical to 4A's strategic planning today. Perhaps 4A's most well-known alumni is the first curator of the gallery, Melissa Chu. In 1996, she was finishing her Masters of Arts Administration at what was then known as the College of Fine Arts at UNSW. And she had had a stint curating at Western Sydney University. 
She joined the committee in 1996 as part of the Visual Arts Subcommittee before becoming the gallery's first curator and then, a year later, its first director. In 2001, Melissa left Sydney and Foray for New York where she worked at the Asia Society Museum and in 2014 she moved to Washington DC where she became the director of the Hershon Museum and Sculpture Garden. She has said to me on numerous occasions that the hardest work she's ever done was at 4A and I think this is a great reminder of the contribution of the small to medium sector within the greater arts ecology. Melissa curated many of the first shows including the very first exhibition which was simply entitled Inaugural Exhibition and it featured the work of Emile Goh, Lindy Lee and Ho Leong. All three artists were very active in the visual arts community in the late 90s and were friendly with the 4A gallery team. By starting the organisation with an exhibition of three Asian Australian artists, the gallery was really setting a tone for the space that would and continues to be led by Asian Australians. The first exhibition was also a microcosm for the explorations of Asian Australian identity at the time and illustrated the ongoing connection to a multiplicity of places as a key component of the Asian Australian experience. Goh's photographic series, The Last Nonya, is an exploration of his personal lineage through the photographs of his parents' wedding. Goh's mother, who was an artist herself, is of Peranakan Malaysian Chinese heritage. Nonya came to be the term used for a Peranakan woman. Her marriage to Goh's father, who was not a Peranakan, was really a sign of the times and was indicative of, a, of the loss of this regional culture. Through digital manipulation, Go has blurred all figures except for his mother, enabling her status as the last nonya to be clearly perceptible. Ho Leong exhibited a work from his An Australian series. Created in 1994, this series was a significant contribution to the ongoing discourse of what is Australian identity and how Asian Australians, and in this case, Chinese Australians, contribute to it. This series is darkly comedic. Leong inserts himself into iconic images of Australian life and culture. He becomes Paul Hogan while grasping Linda Hamilton in a publicity image for Crocodile Dundee. His face is superimposed onto a lineup of surfers, and he is depicted leaning up against an outback bar nursing a beer. These images elicit amusement for his face immediately appears incongruous in each context. But why is this? Why is a Chinese Australian depicted doing so-called Australian things funny? It appears that definitions of Australian culture and leisure activities remain predominantly Euro-American. And 25 years later, these works still, sadly, prompt similar responses. For the inaugural exhibition, at 4A, Leong exhibited an Australian cricket hero and appears in cahoots with the then icon of Australian sport, Shane Warne. Leong also exhibited the work Autobiography with Chairman Mao, another photographic work of 1994. Here he inserts himself into a fictitious meeting with Mao, writing himself into history and, just as the un-Australian series explored his Australian cultural connections, Autobiography explored his ongoing connection to his birth country of China. While Go and Leong were relative newcomers in the art community and just beginning to be noticed, the third artist was Lindy Lee. Lee became a key part of 4A and would later, for a period, become the chair of the board. In 1997, Lee was represented by Rosalind Oxley Nine and exhibited her work Birds of Appetite. The work is immediately recognisable as iconic of her practice. 
comprised of a series of panels and featuring early experimentations of Zen Buddhist-inspired flung ink, Birds of Appetite is indicative of Lee's exploration during this time of both history and her personal heritage. She was playing with repetition, from the slow disintegration of imagery through copying, as well as studying Buddhism, which influenced her mark making, removed it from the conscious decision and connected it to her meditative unconscious. It is a work that Lindy continues to explore today. This opening exhibition really framed the focus and direction of 4A. In 1997, Melissa Chu was interviewed where she stated, the first exhibition at 4A was intended as an introduction. The combination of emerging artists and established artists is a policy which we would like to continue into the future. In the same article, Chu outlines the aims of 4A that remained at the heart of the organisation today. Gallery 4A is undertaking the challenge of creating a new language for the interpretation of contemporary art, a discourse that is not Euro-American, but respectful of difference. A discourse such as this could be of value to all levels of society. It is great to see from these early snaps the number of people who came to this little and unassuming space in Chinatown. These images illustrate how, while 4A may have been lost to many of the well-heeled mainstream art goers at the time, but it was a place known to many artists, curators and writers who have gone on to be influential within the industry and remain very supportive of 4A's overarching aims. The program that followed that first year interrogated the contemporary Australian art landscape. It was experimental, it was inclusive, and it was a program that really reflected these foundational aims of the gallery. They really sought to construct a new infrastructure for the Australian art world that would encompass a more diverse understanding of who we are. Here, John Young reflects on the exhibitions presented after the inaugural exhibition. That was just one of the first exhibitions. Um, you know, the, the ones that came after was also extremely interesting. Um, by a lot of local uh, contemporary artists who have become fairly established people. I can see um, there that there was an exhibition with Stephen Brambury, Vicente Bitron, Marco Fusinato, Melinda Harper, Felicia Kern and Susan Norrie. Um, and so, for example, the, a lot of these artists have become a very significant artist in their own right. One of those artists was Dachi Dang. Dachi was a founding member of 4A and in 2019 actually rejoined the team. He's been instrumental in the, my preparations for this lecture as, as he's shared many stories from those early days. Dachi's exhibition in 1997 is listed as 5x5, but by his own accounts, it was actually called 4x4. And it featured this series of small 4cm by 4cm photographs pinned directly onto the wall. Dachi remembers his exhibition fondly the long, white, narrow gallery with a series of tiny photographs. He also remembers the support he received from Melissa to just pin the works directly onto the wall and do away with the mandatory framing of the time. This acceptance and embracing of experimental nature was for him exhilarating. I feel, wow, this is my second show. I mean, and this is also the first show. I mean, I show into the uh, show at the Asian organizations, I mean, to support Asian artists and it feels amazing. Over the years, Daichi has exhibited numerous times at 4A, each marking significant milestones in his career. In 2001, his critical work, The Boat, filled the entire first floor where we are now of 4A, where he rebuilt a scale model of the boat that he, as a 16-year-old boy, escaped from Vietnam in. Along with his brother and sister, he endured a traumatic journey 
on a small fishing boat before arriving on the shores of Malaysia. From there, Daichi was transported to a refugee camp of Palau Badong for nine months before being transferred then on to Kuala Lumpur, where he was recognised as a Vietnamese refugee and accepted into Australia in 1982. This exhibition remains a milestone in Foray's history, illustrating the supportive nature of the organisation to enable artists to envisage ambitious personal projects that are important to our understanding of our collective Australian experience. More recently, in 1997, Dachi held his first major retrospective at 4A, titled An Omen Near and Far, which pulled together significant works from his career, including the first work he made in Palau Badong Island, as he waited to be granted citizenship, and the installation work, An Omen Near and Far. Continuing his experimental approach to photography, this work features photographs embedded into wax that were formed into bamboo poles. Over the duration of the exhibition, wicks in the bamboo were lit and the work slowly melted away. For Daichi, it was 4A's enduring support and encouragement of experimental practice that has been at the core of the organisation's programming since its first year. This is the place, I mean, that uh, 4A can actually support, I mean, Asian artists, I mean, to do this. I mean, because, I mean, on the big commercial galleries or some other big institutions, I mean, they still very, very conservative. So by that way, I mean, we don't have, um, we don't have opportunity to actually show this kind of work, experiment, contemporary Asian artists and all that. And it's fantastic. And so, which is, I mean, yeah, we got amazing, I mean, exhibitions uh, on the first year. It is important to note how experimental work remains important to 4A today. The organisation has never solely been about representation or visibility, but has also been about pushing a real risk-taking agenda. These first shows, and I think today, 4A remains a space where artistic practice is pushed. From the outset, the program was rigorous and robust, and this had enabled 4A to work with artists throughout their careers. Often 4A is the place where emerging artists have their first exhibition. It is where mid-career artists often have their first solo and really have to think about how their work hangs together as part of a story that unfolds in space. And we work consistently with artists of national and international recognition who at 4A are supported to deviate from what is expected of them and continue to refresh and reframe their practice. This active encouragement of experimentation has led 4A to embrace multi-art form within the visual arts and has led to milestone exhibitions, but also to many exhibitions that were more experimental than successful. And that's also okay. 4A provides a supportive framework to enable artists to push their practice. And sometimes that act itself is just as important as the exhibitions the audiences encounter. This first year of programming was a clear embodiment of the strategic ideals of the organising committee and clearly demonstrates an appetite for artistic experimentation. The organisation was taking great steps to support Asian Australian creativity and forging a space for their works on the national stage. But they were also, and perhaps more importantly, taking great pains for Asian Australian art not to be siloed. Instead, they were actively seeking for an expanded understanding of contemporary Australian culture and included Asian Australian perspectives and experiences as part of this story. Here John Young remembers the exhibitions that followed the inaugural exhibition in 1997. The two or three or four different shows after that, they were all um, sort of participated with 
white Australian artists interested in Euro-American modernity curated also very much by um, artists, uh, curators such as Janet Shanks or, or uh, Felicia Khan. Um, and, uh, and these people were self-curating in a sense. And I think that those three or four other exhibitions really uh, spelled out the fact that Forays was not just a, an association for ethnic Asian Australian artists, you know, in such a reduced equation, but it was really for the attempt uh, to look at pluralizing um, Australian contemporary arts interest with um, Asian contemporary culture, and also uh, to encourage Australian artists uh, and to encourage Asian Australian philanthropy of contemporary Australian artists. John makes a key point here in how 4A was not only interested in developing creative practice, but also in developing philanthropists that were passionate about Australia's engagement with Asia and would support the establishment of closer cultural links within the region. While the gallery has always had the ambition and the nous to forge creative links between Australia and Asia, to identify opportunities for artists to present their works and to facilitate residencies and travel in the region, it has relied on philanthropists to make this happen. Government funding was largely year to year and project to project over 4A's first decade, and it was and remains through the support of individual philanthropists that sees 4A's work as imperative to the Australian's cultural landscape and who have secured its future. Fundraising has always been a key part of the organisation. The first space was indebted to the philanthropic support of James Fairfax, Cameron McIntosh and the City of Sydney but it was also indebted to fundraising efforts. Fundraising at 4A has always had huge elements of fun. Stories from some of the early events held at the Mandarin Club are now infamous, and whenever we flick through those early photo albums, we are astounded by the number of art world luminaries that had attended these events. From the late Art Gallery of New South Wales director, Edmund Capon, who later became chair of 4A in 2015, to philanthropist Dick Kwan, and then emerging curator, Lisa Haviler. The first fundraiser, however, was a more modest affair. Held in the gallery itself, John Young presided over an auction of artworks that raised $6,290, which was a sizable sum for the gallery. The lucky cat pictured here remains at Foray's funding mascot and it watches over the bowl for donations at the bar at our openings. I am aware that this lecture makes the establishment of 4A sound very tidy, strategic and organised. And while I don't doubt this, I also think it had a very scrappy beginning. The entire early management committee painted the walls of the first place. They argued about vision in the meetings. They sometimes had few disagreements. They took risks and they leveraged opportunities. Like any artist-run space, it was the impetus of the early members that enabled the organisation to take flight. Four years later, at the end of 2000 and early 2001, Melissa Chu was off to New York with a, for a job with the Asia Society. John Young had relocated to Melbourne, and many of the early um, organisers had lives that had taken them away from 4A. The following decade saw the slow professionalisation of the organisation and the next generations lead and shape its direction. However, the scrappiness and determination that was so critical in the formation of 4A in the 90s remains at the heart of the organisation. 
throughout the thousands and into the teens, 4A weathered many storms. While we have remained here in our home in the corporation building in Haymarket, there have been financial hiccups and moments when the organisation almost ran out of steam. But each time, 4A has been re-energised by ongoing artists, curators, board members and patrons who have enabled the organisation to endure. The more recent securing of ongoing state and federal funding has allowed the organisation to grow and over the last decade, 4A has become more influential both nationally and internationally. In 2020, we remain a small team with big ambitions and the grit to achieve it. When I look back at what was achieved by the likes of Melissa, John and Darcy in those early years, and how it was continued by luminaries such as Lindy Lee, Bingwei Huang Fu, and of course my predecessor, Aaron Sito, I am very humbled that I am one of the current custodians of this very important place. 25 years since those first early meetings, you would have hoped that by now, many of those original aims would have been achieved. But alas, not yet. 4A has much more work to do, and we look forward to continuing to challenge the understandings of what Australian culture is long into the future. Thank you.